Well, welcome to The Crossing today. I was watching that video and I got tired. I was watching the students jumping around and I thought, I need a nap right now. Like that was incredibly inspiring and incredibly exhausting all at the same time to watch them do that. And I just love Nate and his team and Rachel and our Next Gen team and all that they are doing. And again, just to piggyback on that, if you have students that are in that age group, I would strongly encourage you to figure out a way to get them engaged, whether on Wednesday night or in some of the other activities that are happening. Hey, before we jump in today, I want to take just a moment and, and acknowledge some things that we've experienced as a country in the last week that I feel like if we just do church and then kind of move on, then we're missing a moment to at least stop and to pause and remind ourselves um, who we are as people. You know, we have experienced some violence, some violence in the, that is directed at people that we would use the term hate to acquaint with that. And so whatever, whatever perspective you may have on issues that are predominant in our culture and things that we're trying to figure out together to make us better, we all would agree that these sorts of behaviors are obviously not what we are about and not what we want to be about. And when we watch the events happen in Pittsburgh, it comes even closer to home because we think about a place of worship. And, and millions of people are gathering today in different houses of worship like you are and are expecting to be able to come and to just connect with God and to be able to move closer in that. And we have a sign on our side of our building. We have a value that we talk about all the time, come as you are. And we want to be one of those places that will reflect that, come as you are, wherever you are in your spiritual journey, your life journey, whatever questions you're wrestling with. But we know that this sort of thing has no place. And I want to encourage us to consider, we're going to pray together, but before we do that, just to consider, sometimes you can feel overwhelmed, like what can we do to stem the tide? What can we do to stop these radical things from happening? And, and those are great questions, but I think it always begins with us. And I think as followers of Christ, we have to look inward. What are the, what are the conversations we are having? What are the type of, of thoughts we are having? What, what sort of people do we push away? What sort of people do we embrace? What sort of things do we fill our social media news feed with? We have to ask those kinds of questions and then ask the question, what would Jesus want us to reflect? Because he, he came to bring life, he came to bring peace, he came to bring love. And God so loved the world that he gave his only son that we could be a part of that kind of an environment. So I would just encourage us to reflect today and through this week on how we can do that better. How we can step back from maybe some of the angst and anger that we might be feeling about things that are important but, are not, but should not take us to that place. And we just ask that you would do that as a church, but also as families and as individuals. All right, can we pray specifically today for those in Pittsburgh, those in Pennsylvania that um, are Jewish brothers and sisters that are experiencing uh, just a tremendous amount of uh, just not just sadness. That's not even, that doesn't even do us justice, just grief that they are experiencing today. Father, we just pray across the miles, God, for this, this congregation Lord, this place of, of worship, this place where they would gather to seek you, God, and just the disruption that took place in the lives that were lost and the families that will never be the same. God, we, we pray for, we pray specifically for this community. We pray for the leadership there. We pray for, for something, God, to come out of this, Lord, that would shake us, that would move us. God, we pray that any of the frustrations that we might feel, any of the, uh, of the impatience we may feel with progress or things that we believe that, that need to happen. Father, we pray that it would never lead us down a path to hate our brother, to hate our sister. God, help us to reflect you in our words and our thoughts. Help us to be a church that does the same, we pray in your name. Amen. Amen. Well, 
About a year ago, my wife and I reached a milestone in our lives. We, took, we had our second child, um, our last child, that went away to college. And if you don't like your kid, then you're excited about this. But we actually, we actually liked him okay. And so he was getting ready to, to go to Phoenix and all the preparation that went into that. And then taking him there and just getting him into his room and meeting his roommates and doing all that. If you, if you haven't experienced it yet as a parent, you at some point will. And then, you know, you, you go home and it's just the two of you. And so you're there and you're figuring that out. And we're driving home from Phoenix and we're, you know intermittently crying and just like sad and we're reflect it was pathetic but it's okay and we're reflecting on our lives and our kids and all of that and then we get home and we had done something that we thought was very intentional and strategic is we had missed our anniversary in the midst of moving him into school so we had set aside a night at the red rock and we were going to do a staycation we were going to go to dinner and then we're going to spend some time by the pool and we were just going to kind of celebrate we're going to get crazy i mean we're just going to party because we're empty nesters and like do all of that so we checked into the hotel, and both of us were not in a great place because we had just been reflecting over the last few days, and, and then we, we get in the room, and then we go to dinner, and we're just staring at each other, and we're sad, and we FaceTime him, so we have dinner for like 45 minutes, and we're FaceTiming him, and we're like eating, and you know, and he's trying to adjust, so that makes us more sad. You know, he's like, I'm trying to make friends, and we're like, yeah. And so it's just a bad night. It's just miserable. And we, we had this plan. Like, we had this dream. We had this exciting image of what was going to happen. We get up the next day. We're like, we got to fix this. So we're going to the pool. And we find two really good loungers. And we've got a book. And we're just going to kind of sit by the pool and read and have a beverage and just kind of hang out and try to get, you know, try to start moving forward. We're about an hour into this time. And my phone rings. And it's my son in Phoenix. He's only been there a week. And he's like, Dad, I'm, I'm over here. At, I think he's at Target. And he's like, my, my car's broke down. It won't start. I don't know what's going on. And I don't know what to do. And I don't know anybody. And I don't know what I'm supposed to do. And who do I call? And I'm sitting there on this lounger next to everyone. I'm wearing my Speedo. And I'm looking good. I'm just ready. I'm ready for an evening. And he, I'm on the phone with him. And I spend the next hour, right? And my wife's like, let's just go to Phoenix. We got to go help him, you know? And I spend the next hour on the phone, you know, calling roadside and trying to do all that. And after an hour, hour and a half, we're just look at each other. And we literally just go, we're out of here. And we just pack up our things and we go home, right? Because what we had dreamed was going to be, what we thought was going to be the reality, our expectations of our weekend were obviously not going to happen and couldn't happen in our current state of mind. Now, when you hear that story, there are moments that you've had in your life or maybe you're experiencing right now that you can reflect and go, yes, I understand that type of experience. And we've been in this series, and we're wrapping it today, surrounding the life of David and looking at all of the different parts of his life. And today we're going to be reminded as we close it out that through the life of David, something very important that we all know but we need to be reminded of. You ready? Here's what it is. Life rarely goes as planned. Now, we like plans. Some of you are planners. I'm married to a planner. Plans are good. But the truth is we all know that eventually, no matter how well we run our plan, reality always wins. So plans are great. Reality is greater. Things, even for those of us who are followers of Christ, Things do not always turn out as planned. The two of you may not live happily ever after. You may never walk your daughter down the aisle. You may never purchase that high chair 
that you expected to purchase. That second marriage is starting to feel like the first one. That prodigal son or daughter may never come home. You aren't getting into that school. You wanted to get into that school, but you're not getting into that school. It looks like money may always be tight. It looks like that dream job may not be the dream job after all. Aren't you glad you came today? And depending, depending on your faith background, depending on your church experience, de- depending on your religious experience, you may have listened to me rattle those things off, and somewhere in your soul, a sense of panic may have set in, because you have always assumed, and we have always lived as if faith is a cause and effect sort of experience. In other words, it's a predictable outcome agreement, and we love predictable outcomes. Basically, we've been sold sometimes, unfortunately, in a destructive and confusing way, this idea that when you follow Jesus... That if you do A, that B is always going to happen. And we don't love to talk about the times where we actually do A and B doesn't happen. Well, I don't want to talk about that, right? Because we've been told, we've been taught too often that our faith is a cause and effect sort of a thing. We might describe it in this way. It's sort of the idea of living in an if-then reality. That our faith exists in a way that says, if I do this, then God will do that. You you may feel like God promised you. Some of you may even say, God didn't just promise me. He owes me. Because I did A. And God needs to do B. I did everything right. And now it's looking like my dream can't. Not only can't, but it won't come true. The outcomes you thought were guaranteed, now you're sitting here today or you're watching today and you're thinking, I don't think those things are going to happen. And in fact, it looks like everybody else's dreams are going to come true but yours. So what do we do with that? So the next few minutes, we're going to look at David. We're going to wrap this series and we're going to look at the answer, David's, David's response or David's perspective or what we can really just learn from David to answer the question, what do we do when our dreams can't come true. What do we do when our dreams can't come true? Now, sometimes things don't turn out as planned because of something that someone else does to us. Remember back when David was in his early 20s and he thought the plan was that, you know, he was just going to become king and that he had been anointed and this was all going to work out and it was going to be a smooth transition. And then Saul got involved. And when Saul got involved, he was not following the plan. And so David ended up out in the middle of the wilderness, and he's on the run for years from Saul, right? And at times, David does the right thing when he's in the wilderness. But if you read the story, and we visited some of it, sometimes in the midst of the plan not working out and the dream seeming like it was going to be elusive, David would do some things that are panicky and, and kind of mess things up. But sometimes our dreams don't happen because of other people's influence. But sometimes our dreams can't happen and they won't happen because of things that we do things that we do. Now, after about 21 years after David became king, now this means king, you can read that, became king when he's 30 years old, but about 21 years after, we call it AK, which means after king, he had that incident with Bathsheba. He had that incident with Bathsheba, and he was 31, he was 30 years old when he became king. Can we put that up? Thank you. Then 21 years, I'm pointing at space, and you guys are like, I think it's supposed to come up. 51 years old. He's 51 years old. Now, when you think 51, some, how many of you are 50? 
you're at least 50, you're a dude in the room, right? Don't be shy. Be proud. Raise your hand, all right? Now, most of the guys that raise their hand, they look good. They look really good. But when you're 50 in that culture, you did not look good. All right? they, didn't, they didn't have the same kind of preservation that we have. So when David was 51 and he had that unfortunate incident with Bathsheba, it wasn't like he was just an amazingly attractive guy. He was just this old king dude. All right? And Shane unpacked this story um, extensively a few weeks ago, so I won't go back, but I want to review it just briefly, some of the highlights. And, and that's this, is that obviously the story is David sent his men to war. He's hanging back. He sees Bathsheba as he's walking around at night. He's the king. And so when the king says, come over here, you do what the king says. She comes over. They enter into an affair. One note to you, I think many of us think of it as like a one-night thing. But in honestly, um, really most scholars believe that based on a timeline, that this was much more of something that went on for weeks, if not months that they would have been at war and David would have been having this affair with Bathsheba to the point where finally she comes to David and says, I'm pregnant. David freaks out because now, you know, he's like, I need to control things. I need to make things happen. So he... So Uriah comes, her husband, back from the, he calls him back from the battle. He says, go home, be with your wife. Uriah refuses because at this moment, he has more character than David does. And then David tries to get him drunk and sends him back home. He doesn't. He sleeps by the gate. So David gives up on that plan, sends Uriah back to Joab, who's his commander, sends a note. Isn't this terrible? Sends a note with Uriah basically saying, send him out to the front lines with his bodyguard, and then everybody pull back and make sure that Uriah gets killed. And it'll just look like he got killed in the course of battle, and I, this benevolent king, took Bathsheba into my home, and it all works out. But it doesn't work out. Because even though Uriah is killed, and David does do that and bring Bathsheba in, every time we have sin in our life, there are eventual consequences to those sins. It comes prepackaged. And eventually, even though time goes by, Nathan, who is David's advisor, he was his prophet, he comes to him, and in chapter 12, he says this. This is what the Lord says. Out of your own household, I am going to bring calamity on you. This is amazing. You did it in secret. But I will do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. Because you are the leader, you are accountable to the entire kingdom. And because of that, I'm going to bring consequences into your life that everybody is going to know about. And when David hears Nathan, he breaks. Because he's a man after God's own heart. And he confesses his sin. And he says the following. He says to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And he gets this. Even though he is a king, he realizes I am not the king. He realizes that his sin has broken his relationship with God. And even though God forgives, note to us, even though God forgives, there are going to be unavoidable consequences. And part of David's consequences in his life were that the expectations that he had, the hopes that were there, the desires and the dreams now can't happen because of these consequences. But actually, a year goes by and nothing happens. Two years go by, three years go by, and nothing happens. But these consequences are about to take hold on David's life and turn his world upside down. And by the end of the story, you'll see that his dreams can't and won't come true. So in AK-24, you're getting it now, right? We're introduced to Amnon. This is 24 years after David became king. Amnon is David's oldest son. He is assume that he will take over the throne. But Amnon's got this thing, and it's not a pretty thing. It's really kind of a gross thing. He has this lust. He's consumed with lust for his half-sister, Tamar. 
They share one parent, and then they have a separate parent, and he's consumed with lust for her. You can read this story yourself, but in the, 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 the crux of the story is he, he pretends to be sick. He calls Tamar to, to him. She brings him a meal. He sends everybody else out, and then he says, I'm just pretending to be sick because I love you so much. Come to bed with me. She does not give consent. She refuses. He keeps saying, come to bed, come to bed. Finally, he rapes her. And what scripture tells us that is, is probably not surprising is as soon as this was over, he hated her. He hated her with intense hatred. In fact, he hated her more than he had loved her. And Amnon said to her, get up and get out. And she's disgraced. Because in that society, in that culture, to, to have that happen to you, unfortunately, was a disgraceful thing. You were basically, you were not fit to be married. No one would take you in. You would basically could be just ostracized from the entire community. And David finds out about it, and he is so ticked. He is, he is so furious with Amnon, who's supposed to be king. And so you know what David does? Nothing. He does nothing. And we don't know why David didn't do anything. But it seems as though maybe it was because he feels like I've kind of lost all of my moral standing to be able to actually do things about these type of things since my incident with Bathsheba. So nothing happens. But Absalom, we're introduced to, who is David's third son, Absalom steps up. And he, he takes Tamar, who is his full sister, into his home and he cares for her. But Absalom is really upset at Amnon. But he's also really, really sly and smart. And so he waits. He waits a year. He waits another year. He noticed that his father does nothing. And everybody kind of forgets about Tamar and forgets about Amnon. And pretty much everybody's ready to just move on and just keep chasing their dreams. But Absalom decides that he's going to throw a party, kind of a Cinco de Mayo. Like we're going to all get together and we're going to just party. And he invites all of his brothers, all of his brothers to come. At this point, Amnon was the next in line. We believe that the second son of David has died already. So then Absalom would be third in line. And he, we also find out that he's David's favorite son. And so he even invites David to come to the party. David says, no, you guys do your party thing without me. He invites everybody. They all just have some adult beverages. It gets, the party gets kind of lit up a little bit. And as the party goes into late into the night and the next morning, Absalom sees his chance because Amnon's drunk and he calls his men in and they slaughter Amnon right in front of all the other brothers. And Absalom takes his revenge. And everybody freaks out. The brothers that are there, they're thinking Absalom's gone nuts. They run back to Jerusalem to David and Absalom flees north to an area north of Jerusalem that we now know as Syria. And he's basically in exile. And when David finds out that his oldest son Amnon has been killed by his favorite son Absalom, he is so upset, but he does nothing. And for, for almost three years, Absalom is stuck in exile up north. And he's getting more and more upset. Why don't you call me back? Finally, David calls him from exile back to Jerusalem. But then another period of time goes by before he even calls Absalom in and, and, and has face to face. And so their relationship is just broken. It's just not going to be repaired. But he's next in line to the throne, and he's David's favorite son. And so Absalom, realizing what's going on, says, well, I'm going to take my dream into my own hands. And so he begins to plan. And in AK-29, after King 29... Absalom starts this rebellion. What he does is so smart. He basically is running his own political campaign. You know, the robocalls and everything in your mailbox. That's Absalom, okay? I know. I want to say, I voted already. Stop calling me, right? So he sets up shop outside the gate. This is so smart. He sets up shop outside the gates of the city. 
And so when the people come into the city because they want to meet with the king about a dispute or they want to do business with the king in the kingdom, before they can even get in the city, he, he meets them. He says, hey, how can I help you? And so day after day, he sits there and he starts meeting the people's needs and, and, and taking care of their disputes. And eventually, the, the, the scripture tells us that the, he wins the hearts of the people. So much so that eventually one day, he says, listen, they're going to blow a horn. And when the horn blows in all the villages and towns outside of Jerusalem, we want you to scream at the top of your lungs, Absalom is king. Absalom is king. He wasn't even king yet. But he's winning the hearts of the people. Because if you say something is true... Long enough, it kind of becomes true in people's minds. Hello? And so David realizes, I'm in trouble. Plus, Absalom is great to look at. Seriously, here's what the Bible says. Check this out. In all of Israel, there was not a man so highly praised for his... In all of Las Vegas, there was not a man so highly praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. It gets better from the top of his head to the sole of his feet. There was no blemish in him. He looked good. He looked good. He loved people. He was like, you, if you looked up king material in the dictionary or Googled it, he would be right there, his image. And David realized he was in trouble. He realizes that the hearts of the people are with Absalom. So a messenger comes. And gives him that final word. And it says this in verse, verse 13. It says, the hearts of the people of Israel are with Absalom. And so David says, we've got to flee. We've got to go. So in AK-31, okay, he's now 61 years old. Remember, he fled into the wilderness when he was around his early 20s with Saul. So it's about 40 years later. And now where is he finding himself? Not where he dreamed he would be. Not where he thought God would have him. Not, if, not where if I do this, God, then this is all going to happen. No, he's back in the wilderness. And so David was smart enough. In verse 14, he said to all his officials who were with him in Jerusalem, Come, we must flee or none of us will escape from Absalom. We must leave immediately or he will move quickly to overtake us and bring ruin on us and put the city to the sword. David has to flee. He abandons the throne he abandons the city, and he goes out into the countryside where he is again a fugitive, running from his own son. And it paints a very sad picture of David. It tells us that the people were around him. He still had his army. He still had all those, but the people around him, and his head was covered. He was actually barefoot, and he's weeping, and the people are weeping with him. This was not the dream. This was not supposed to happen. This was not the way he was supposed to spend the latter seasons of his life. His dreams were not coming true, and it turned Turns out they could not come true in the way that he saw them or thought that they should. And this is where we are. Because in this moment in the story, this is where I am and this is where you are. This is once again where our lives intersect with the story of David. Here we are again. You can picture it. We're heartbroken. We're frustrated. We're even angry. We are disappointed with God. We're looking for somebody to blame. Maybe we've decided to blame God. I mean, listen, you hung in there with him when he was difficult to live with. You hung in there with her year after year. And now look what, look what he's done. Look what she's done. You waited and you waited and you waited. For what? You raised him right. You raised her right. You don't deserve to be treated this way. Look at the way he's treating you. Look at the way she's treating you. You were honest. You were told if you were honest, good things happened. You were honest and you lost that job. 
You worked hard, and it hasn't really worked out. And this is the point where we do more damage to ourselves. This is the point where our disappointment leads to more hurt. We create more debt. We create more addiction. We create more pain. But this isn't the first time David's dealing with this situation. He's now in what I call the autumn years of his life. That's right. I, I, I think life works in seasons. Now, again, I get to make mine up. So these are mine. Don't get mad. Don't send me emails because you're not in the right season. All right? This is just me. All right? This is just where I think life kind of breaks down. Okay? So, so track with me. Like, o to, so 0 to 25. You know, birth to 25. We would call that kind of the spring years of your life. Right? Like, everything's fresh and you can go after it. And things are able to just kind of, you have lots of, it's like what we saw in the video. Right? You just have lots of energy and things can happen and, and you do all kinds of potential. We love spring. Right? It's the point where we meet, maybe we meet somebody we're going to spend the rest of our life with. And we're just, we decide what we're going to do with it. Spring is where dreams are birthed. Spring is awesome, right? But then we come into summer. A lot of you are in summer. Hello, summer people. Where are you? Right? Summer, it's hot. It's hot up there, right? It's hot. It's a grind, right? What we thought about in spring, we realize it's like, man, I got to go to work every day. Like, it's this adult thing. Like, <laughs> money's hard to come by, and, and retirement accounts don't just grow, and parenting's difficult, and that relationship that I thought was just going to be, I love you, you love me, we're always going to be happy, man, that's a grind. That's a lot of work, right, in summer. And then we get into autumn, or we get into fall. That's where I am right at the beginning, <clears throat> right at the beginning. <laughs> we get into autumn, we get into fall. And, and we love fall, like this time of year, like October, we love October, especially in Vegas. I know we don't get all the fall things, but when the temperature changes, right, you can maybe light a fire out in the backyard and some things, you know, the colors start changing. That's like fall in us, right? Like colors start to change a little bit, right? <laughs> things start to fall a little bit. That's, that's what happens in autumn and fall in our lives. Some of you are there. This is where David was. Okay, remember, this is where David was. So he still had sort of a spring mentality, but he's in fall. And then I put 75 plus winter. I, I, I don't know. But if you're in winter, you know, it's like it's cold. It's snowing in here, right? We're white up here. It's, it's winter, okay? And David found, and listen, here's the thing. David found himself in that time of life. And today I'm navigating in my own life and many of you. And we start to understand it in the fall years, in those years David was in, that the seeds of our life, the things that we think are falling, the disappointments, the unfulfilled dreams, they actually begin to compost in our life. And they begin to grow new things. They begin to grow things out of what we thought was fallen and what we thought was broken. That job you lost actually pushed you to find work that was more meaningful. And sometimes we discover that in the fall and autumn of our life. Sometimes we discover that the road closed sign forced us in a new direction, that we are so glad that we traveled, that losses we maybe experienced in spring and summer that we thought were unrecoverable, suddenly we, we find a source of meaning and the seeds of new life are always being sown. And that's the season David's in. I love this poem by William Yates. It's been driving me a little bit lately to think about my life. So I don't care if you're in spring or you're in any other season. I think this is good to reflect on. It says this, the leaves are many, the root is one. Through all the lying days of my youth, my spring, I swayed my leaves and flowers in the sun. Now may I wither into the truth. And as we hit these seasons of our lives, we begin to wither into the truth. We come to the soul truth of who we are, the complexities of our dark sides. 
and our light sides. And this is where David finds himself hiding out in the wilderness when he is withering into the truth. And as he withers into the truth about himself, he does something and he says something that is key for us to hear today before we get out of here. Because when David left Jerusalem, he left with his mighty men, he left with all the people who were still supporting him, and he also left with something very important, the Ark of the Covenant. You remember it from the movie. And so Zadok, the high priest, was there with him, and they were carrying the Ark of the Covenant out of the city. And it was very important because to those people, the Ark of the Covenant represented God's presence. When the Ark of the Covenant was there, God was there. It was symbolic. So if they were going to a battle and they were concerned about winning the battle, sometimes they would actually bring the Ark of the Covenant out into the battlefield because when the soldiers would see the Ark of the Covenant, they would say, boom, right, like God is with us. But here's what David did that was so interesting as he withered into the truth. When he saw that ark, something clicked in him. And he realized, I'm having a moment where I'm manipulating. Where I'm not, I'm not convinced that God is necessarily in alignment with what is happening here. That I'm not sure that I should take God's presence symbolically with me. And so what he does is he says to Zadok, the high priest, he says, take the ark of God back into the city. And all the people who were going with David... Can you imagine how suddenly they became nervous? It made them crazy. They're like, no, David, we thought you were going. We thought God was going with us. And now you're sending God's presence back into the city? That was a powerful thing that David did by saying, listen, I'm sending God, what we see as God's presence back in the city. And then he says something that we all need to reflect and say when we think about our dreams and our prayers and our hope and expectation. Here's what he says to Zadok. He says this, take it back in the city because if I find favor in the Lord's eyes, he, he will bring me back and let me see it and his dwelling place again. But, but if he says, I'm not pleased with you, then I am ready let him do to me whatever seems good to him. Let me translate. Not my will, but his will. Remember the three Hebrew children when they went in the fiery furnace and they said, we believe God will deliver us, but even if he doesn't, we're good. This is basically David's fiery furnace moment. I'm going out in the wilderness, and if God chooses to continue to make me king, if God chooses to continue to bless me, then I'm good. that's great. And if he doesn't, I'm good with that too. Because I'm learning as I'm withering into the truth in my life that eventually God's going to do what God's going to do. And if I'm not on board with it, he's going to do it anyway. And so I want to be on board with what God is up to. David had lost his world, but not his faith or confidence in God. And he refused, by sending the ark back, to take matters into his own hands. And if you follow the rest of the story, which I'd encourage you to read it out, eventually he is able to come back into the city. And he goes back to the throne, but not in the way he imagined. His son Absalom, his favorite son, is slaughtered by David's own men. And he lives nine more years. And then finally, at about the age of 70, David, David dies. And his life does not end on the high note that he probably thought it would. It wasn't exactly the end of his life that he had dreamed about or had expected to happen for him. 
But there's such an authenticity. That's why I love this series. That's why I love the life of the... There's such an authenticity for us to look at a man who God proclaims to be after mine own heart, and yet his character is constantly challenged, and we see him in all his glory, in all of his, his moments of great victory like this, and also his moments of great failure and his flaws. But in the midst of all of that, he never lost his confidence in God. And it reminds us of something very important, and it's basically this, is that the foundation of our faith... The foundation of our faith is not A equals B. It's not answered prayer or happily ever after endings. It's always a mistake to wrap our faith in God around the fulfillment of our dreams or the answers to our prayer. That's not faith. That's some other stuff. That's not the gospel. When we follow Christ, there are dreams that won't come true. There are at times prayers that won't get answered in the way that we expected them to get answered, in the way that we wanted our will to be done. That's why Jesus taught us to pray and he said, your will be done, not my will be done. And we blow through that when we say it, but we don't understand the consequences of that statement. That ultimately when we pray, God's will will be done. And David was quick to remind us in the midst of the wilderness that we are mistaken even when we feel forsaken. Even when we feel like or it seems like God has abandoned us and we're out in the wilderness, that God, even when we don't see him, he's there, he's there, he's there. David said, I'm going to lose my world, but I may not lose my confidence in God. I mean, David the king was in the autumn years of his life, 61 years old. I want to tell you about David, my friend. He attends here at the crossing. And when Dave was in his mid-20s, late-20s, he and his wife, Danielle, found out that they were pregnant with their third child. And they're a great couple. Love, I've known Dave since he was a teenager. Just love watching his family. They're one of those families, like they have acres and acres, you know, outside of town. And they just like to, like, do, Dave builds things. He's just an awesome guy. And they were so excited to kind of complete their family with the third child. But late in the second trimester, right before the third trimester, they found out that their child, through test, it seemed like would have Down syndrome. And when they got the news... There was a sense of of shock, obviously, and surprise and devastation. And and Dave Dave said this. He said, man, I, he told me this last week. He said, I just started to lean in to everything that I thought I was supposed to do. He said, I I prayed. I got prayer teams to pray. He said, I literally fasted for 40 days. I almost killed myself fasting, fasting, fasting. Just believing God, believing God, believing God. And then Emma was born. Here's a picture of the day of her birth. And she was beautiful, she was awesome, and she had Down syndrome. And Dave said, he said, Lee, I want to be clear. He said, when he told me a story, he said, listen, I, I never was upset that she had Down syndrome. Once she was born, I, I just looked at her. I was never upset. But he said, I spent months just totally angry at God. Not angry because she had Down syndrome. I was angry at God because I felt like he lied He was not trustworthy. I did everything that I had been taught to do. When you talk about mustard seed faith, David said, I had watermelon seed faith. I did it all. My friends did it all. And yet she still had Down syndrome. He said, the turning point for me was when I realized that in the midst of that, God was there. It seems simple to you and I. But I think Dave said, I felt like God would only be there if she did not have Down. But he said, she had Down syndrome and God was there. And he was trustworthy. You'll see her. She runs around here all the time. She's part of our kids' meeting. So I think she's turning 11. Dave sent me this picture of her. She's 11. And here's, her, name is, her name is Emma, Emma Joy. 
And Emma, which in German means whole and complete, and they named her Joy because she is their joy. He is there, guys. He is there even when our prayers aren't answered in the way we exactly want. You ever heard of object permanence? I never heard this. this you're going to learn something today. You'll go to the lunch and talk about it. It's, it's, it's why we play peekaboo. That when babies are born, it can take months for them to actually know that an object is there even when they don't see it. I didn't know this. So when I look at the TV down here in front, when I look over here, I don't have to see the TV. My, my brain is programmed to know that that object is permanently there. But a baby does, is not born with that. They learn, that's a learned thing. And so when you play peekaboo, every time you put your hands, the reason they giggle and they laugh is because they feel like you're gone, and then you're back again, and then you're gone, and you're back again. Because they have no sense of object permanence, that even when you put your hands there, that you are still there. It takes months to learn that. Some of us, it's taken us years, and it's time that we learn spiritual object permanence, right? It's time that we learn spiritual, that he is there, even when it feels like God's playing peekaboo with us. It's not an if-then faith. It's an if, there he is. It's an if, there he is. He is there. When I get promoted, he's there. When you get fired, he's there. When you have to shop at Savers for a while, General Dollar Store, or you get to shop at Costco, He's there. When your business is blowing up and when your business is sinking into bankruptcy, he is there. If we live in an A equals B type of a faith, we are going to be vastly disappointed in God our entire lives and we're going to miss a relationship with God that is not based on outcomes but is based on the fact that he is spiritually permanently present in our life. Here's the greatest preeminent promise that God gives us, that his, the presence of God is his preeminent promise to us. That's his promise. No matter what, that's his promise. All the other promises, they're real, but ultimately, number one promise, highest priority is his presence. And David closes us out and closes out this series in a great way with a psalm. I want to read this psalm to you. Psalm 25 reflects this, these words. In you, David says, in you, Lord my God, I put my trust. Guide me in your truth and teach me, for you are God, my Savior, and my hope is in you all day long. Father, I just pray right now, in this moment, in this time and in this season, where for many of us, this isn't just a, an, an idea, but it's a reality, because we've had some dream-crushing moments. We've had some dream-devastating moments things happen to us. It's tough and it's hard and it's brutal. We've had expectations that have not been fulfilled. We've had prayers that have gone to what feels like to us have not gone in the way we want, in the way that you've answered. We've wrestled with that. And God, I just pray today in the midst of this moment and souls that are feeling that, that you would just pour in. Can you do it? God, can you just pour in just that confidence of presence, confidence of presence, confidence of presence. Help our spiritual object permanence to be, to be peaked, to be full, to be mature, where we would see you in all things. And whatever your will is, God, we want to be susceptible to that and open to it. We ask it in your name. Amen.